one of the things I learned in building Bark Bark was that the more specialized we could be, the more successful we were going to be. Say that again. Hi, I'm Joel Pilger, and you are listening to episode 61 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. Today is another in our profile of the Creative Entrepreneur Series featuring Brian Tolleson. Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. This is the conversation between creative leaders and consultants discussing what it really takes to run a thriving creative business. Well, hey, welcome all you fabulous creative entrepreneurs. Today is Wednesday, January 23rd. Welcome back to the Rev Thinking Podcast. It's good to be with you. Um, we missed our podcast publish date of last week, so we're a week off of our usual bi-weekly schedule. But we're back. I'm actually joining you from Atlanta, Georgia. Not here for the most uh, wonderful reasons. I've actually been in Atlanta ever since Christmas uh, to spend time with my family as we've been unfortunately saying a slow goodbye to my father. Um, I was able to spend the last month with him as he was fighting cancer, but also able to say goodbye to him as he passed this past weekend. And so it's been a very difficult and sad time for me and for my family, but also an amazing time. And I encourage any and all of you as you go through these sorts of transitions in life to make the most of spending the time with your family. It's been a a beautiful season. And to my dad out there, I just want to say, have a safe flight. It's been absolutely amazing, and I can't wait to see you again soon. That said, thank you to all of the folks out there, to Tim and the team, but also all of my many fr- friends and clients and collaborators in the industry. Thank you for all the kind words and the condolences. It's been fantastic. I was fortunate today to connect with Brian Tolison, and he agreed to sit down and do a profile of The Creative Entrepreneur, which is our series where we spotlight a creative entrepreneur in our industry and talk about the intersection of creativity and commerce. And Brian is an amazing person that I've known for quite a few years. And you'll hear all about him and his company, Bark Bark, as well as his new company and other things that he's been involved in of late as we get into the episode. First, let me get you a few quick announcements. Cohort London was kicked off And boy, was it great. We had our dinner at the Soho House right near Covent Garden. And our guest was Blair Enns of Win Without Pitching. It was amazing. Thank you to all the creative entrepreneurs that came out from London and from Stockholm, from Amsterdam. Uh, One of my clients, uh, Nika from New York, came over. It was incredible. For those of you interested in joining upcoming events, go to revthink.com slash events. You'll see cohort Um, We've coming up got New York with Carolyn Hill at Carolyn Reps and also Los Angeles is going to feature our special guest Lucas Aragon of ABC Television. So for those of you that want an invitation, uh, please let us know that you'd like to be invited. For those of you that are on the list, be on the lookout for an announcement inviting you to that. Show Launcher at NatPe is happening right now as in like today. January 23rd in Miami. So if you're at NatP and you're taking part in Show Launcher, good for you. For those of you that are in the Miami area or Southern Florida, want to bounce down there and take part, I encourage you to get down there and take advantage of it. Uh, Jumpstart, next accelerator for up and coming studios. I am going to be kicking that off early February. Go to revthink.com slash jumpstart to see what that's all about. Okay, I'm also speaking at Digital Design Days. Maybe you've seen stuff in our Seven Ingredients group on Facebook uh, or some of our other little promotional bits and pieces getting out there. I'm going to be speaking in Geneva, February 11, 12, 13 at the Digital Design Days conference. You can go to ddd.ge to find out more. All right, let me get to today's conversation with Brian Tolleson. This is such an interesting conversation because I'm wondering if you know the answer to this question. If you run a business of your own, maybe you run an animation or a motion design company or maybe a a production company, the question is, will you run your business forever? Will you run your business forever? And a lot of times the answer is, I don't know. I'm just making this up as I go and 
you know, I'm taking it one day at a time. I guess someday, you know, I'll do something else. But what that is, I have no idea. Or some people say, no, I'm going to do this forever. I love it. I'm going to do this. I'm not even going to retire. I'll just do this until the day I die. My question for you is, but what if your priorities change? You know, life is long. We have, uh, we have kids, you know, our kids have kids. Um, our, we have spouses that go through transitions. Um, all sorts of things can happen. E- economics can shift. And what if things change? What if you actually wake up one day and realize, I don't really like this anymore. I don't enjoy this anymore. What will you do with your business? Or what if things start to decay? What if your business goes through a decline or starts to wither in the market that, it, that it's in? What would you do about that? Well, most owners get stuck in this trap thinking, well, if that happened, I guess I would just shut down the business. Or hey, maybe I'll sell my business. And some business owners even would say that's their goal is that someday I'm going to sell my business. And I would say that that's a very, let's just say that that's not a very sophisticated answer, that there are a lot more options. But today we're going to talk with Brian Tullison, who's the founder at BarkBark, a really successful studio that's had such a great run here based in Atlanta as well as in New York and in Los Angeles. You can check them out at BarkBark.com and I encourage you to really get a look at this studio and how focused they are in the space that they're in. They do really brilliant work for a lot of big brands and entertainment companies. But the interesting thing about Brian's story that I want you to pay attention to is how he started his business, how he focused and then how he started changing. And as his priorities shifted in his life, how he didn't just try and hang on, but instead he decided, I'm going to manage this and I'm going to convert my value. I'm going to convert my expertise as I evolve my business. And that's part of the story we're going to hear about in this interview with Brian Tolleson, founder at BarkBark. It occurred to me, it's actually ironic that you and I are actually sitting here and chatting because MLK Day just happened, right? So yes, your yeah. life has been complete mayhem for yeah. the past month or two or whatever, yeah, leading somebody, up to this moment. And yeah. then I'm realizing now, wow, how do you even have time for us to sit and chat? Um, yeah. So anyways, we'll get to all that. Yeah. But I would start here. What is Bark Bark? And how did that, even, how did that thing even come to become a thing? Yeah, Bark Bark. So... I started Bark Bark in uh, 2000. This is actually something I did do in 2004. Um, <laughs> I started Bark Bark. You know, I left Viacom in, not in the most stable uh, psychological place. I mean, I had, you know, spent literally every waking hour for two, three years building Logo. Uh, it was myself and a guy named Matt Farber who was really the business side of it. And I was really the creative and content concept side of, of, of the network. And it was so deeply personal because, you know, it was the first LGBTQ network and it just meant so much to me to do it right. And I'd spent so much time doing it. And then right at the launch, there was sort of a weird political executive move within Viacom and uh, Matt, who was really my partner through the whole thing was sort of ousted and I had a new boss and someone I didn't really agree with. And it was, it was sort of like seeing your dream that like this thing that you built for so long kind of like fall apart at the very last second. What was your, t- what was your title in the Viacom I was the, logo world? I was the vice president of creative, but okay. for most of the launch of the network, I was the only like legitimate staff person. Like I was signing every check for the business. I was, cause everybody really? else were consultants, you know? So I was really the only like staff person for the whole, for the whole venture for, for, I would say the first two years, I was really the only staff person. Um, and was this, and was this in New York right there? Yeah, that was in off New York. of Times yeah. Square yeah. roughly? It, we were in that, we were, um, well, we started out at 1515 for just a second and then we moved up to 1775, um, which was an awesome building cause it's right by the Whole Foods. I mean, but, it was a terrible building. But it was fantastic because it was like right by the whole booth. But you're a creative. So you're VP of creative. Is that what yeah. you, you said your title yeah. was? Yeah, I was VP of creative and marketing. And um, how long was your run in total? Because I'm thinking you were fairly, I mean, you're a fairly young guy now, but you must have been definitely young at that time to be a VP of creative. Um, thank you for saying I'm young. I'm not that young. But uh, <laughs> I look young, hopefully. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, it was pretty, it was, I would say I was sort of late startup of my career. My previous job, I was, um, the reason I, I got involved in the project to begin with was I was the executive producer at Nickelodeon, um, running all of the promotion and content for Nickelodeon. I ran the whole tune in team for Nickelodeon. Got it. And so, um, it was from that seat that I had heard being in the Viacom family that they were going to do this thing called the quote gay channel. And I was like, (laughs) and I went to talk to somebody and I, I reached out, reached out to Judy McGrath who was running things at the time. And I said, you know, First of all, you can't call it the gay channel. <laughs> <laughs> like, right, even behind closed doors? Yeah, is yeah. that appropriate? Yeah. Uh, no, I was just like, it's just it's just not going to, it's not going to have a life. You know, it's going to get dated very fast. And, you know, um, I think that was very much where she was thinking. And I think, you know, she was driven by that MTV creativity that all those original people had. And so she partnered me with Matt, who was really the business side of things to that point. And, and it had, it was a real creative himself. I mean, he's a, he's mm-hmm. a very creative person, but, um, but that was really when we started, uh, work together was just me say, basically being like, don't, you know, don't F this up. Well, what's interesting is I find it, I always find it really fascinating when I hear about somebody making the transition from, shall we say the client or the corporate world to the creative entrepreneur side because that is a transition very few people can manage. Um, there's almost this institutionalized characteristic that it comes with people that have worked in the corporate whatever and then when they come work at a small agency creative firm, they just can't deal. Uh, and I won't bore you with the detail. But but you when your time you when your journey was over at Viacom, what was it in you that said, I'm gonna go start my own shop? Well, it's funny because I actually, before I went to Viacom, I actually had my own shop before. It was a company called Naked Eye Films. Um, and, and was we that were, New York or no, was that No, we here? were only in Atlanta. Okay. And um, so I'll, I'll start from the very beginning. I started out working in the film business. I mean, that was my first job out of college. I um, worked at CA, the big town agency, was my very first. I had an internship with the Television Academy, the people that do the Emmy Awards. And that introduced me to CAA. And then after graduating... I started um, working at CAA, then worked at Columbia Pictures from CAA and worked on like Gladiator, worked on Girl Interrupted, worked on Spy Game, worked on a bunch of like cool, cool movies really um, for a, uh, a great producer. But the film business really wore on me in the sense that like it just took forever to do stuff. Like mm. my first script that I actually got that I was actually story editing on my own and was really running on my own was a. Uh, uh, was with Callie Curry who did Thelma and Louise and we had uh, everything in my life is gay but like we were doing a, a lesbian wedding project before like you know anybody was even thinking about marriage equality and you know that script is still sitting in a drawer somewhere and now dated and irrelevant and we spent so much money and so much time on it and it just it just got frustrating so some friends of mine said you know you should really look at TV and I was like I think I'm just over LA altogether. So I think I'm just going to go back to Atlanta. So I went back to Atlanta and then found my way to Turner through the, so Columbia Pictures people at that time were old Turner Pictures people because there used to be this thing called Turner Pictures. And so they connected me with people at Turner and randomly the person that they knew was a woman named Andrea Taylor. And Andrea Taylor was awesome. And she ran branding for TNT and TBS back in the sort of, really the sort of the glory days of those yeah. brands. And so I went to work as her, basically as her assistant, which I was kind of overqualified for because I had, you know, I was a creative executive basically. I mean, I was a story editor at my previous job. So, uh, and she kind of, and she kind of knew that I was overqualified um, in that way, but, and so quickly kind of gave me my own projects, Mm. which I then quickly turned into within like six months, my own freelance business. I see. Because and so were you there just for a brief stint and then you said, oh, I'm going to do, what was it? You said naked, go out naked on, eye films? Yeah, I'm going to go out on my own and try to do this. I, I also have been really always bad at the corporate politics thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's actually more natural for me to be on the outside than it is to be on the inside because I just, I'm really bad at that stuff. Well, it doesn't surprise me, you know, based on how, who I know you to be today. Yeah. That makes. I've always been that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you're. You know, I, I know you as, a, as, a, as yeah, someone who speaks his mind and yeah. you can be a rabble rouser at times. And that's a 
that's a quality that is, I think, serves you well as an entrepreneur, but probably doesn't serve you well when you are working for the man, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. No, every experience I've had working for the man has ended in um, uncomfortable separation well, and often Michael, attorneys. So, yeah. So back to Viacom, uh, yeah. speaking of working for the man. So when, when your run is done at Viacom, the thought was, oh, I should go back and do what I did when I was running yeah. Naked Eye, but I'll do it more in promo and go back to Atlanta. What was the genesis? Yeah, no, I, 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 I started Bark Park in New York, actually. We started um, uh, out really just in New York. And quickly I was like, you know, there's plenty of people doing this in New York, but, you know, Atlanta seems interesting. I also know it's, like, much more affordable than trying to build a business in New York, which is, you know, very expensive to do. And so within three months of starting um, Bark Bark, moved to Atlanta and started, I mean, at this point it was sort of like, almost like just freelancing when I was first started Bark Bark. Um, and then when I moved to Atlanta, I could afford to hire like an assistant. And so Bark nice. Bark became me and like a helper. You were, right, yeah. you were legit. You were legit. And we, um, you know, rented like a co-working space, you know, okay. and did that with and an assistant. I'm curious, cause I remember when you and I first got acquainted I'm pretty sure, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was when we were working, my studio was working on the scripts up front and you were working on some of the up fronts. And you remember we had used some of your footage yeah. in our edit yeah. and there was a shot of you in one of them and you were like, hey, could you do me a favor? Could you like just not use that shot oh, of yeah. me, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, dude, sure, no problem. What, I don't, I, you know, who yeah. are you again? Oh, yeah. And then we realized that we were actually high school uh, yeah, I guess we fellow alumni school, went yeah. to the same high school in Atlanta, ironically. Yeah. But I remember when I first got exposed to Bark Bark, my impression was, whoa, these guys are totally focused on, what did you call it at the time? Was it called integrations at the time or was it called something else? Yeah, we, we one of the things I learned in building Bark Bark was that the more specialized we could be, the more successful we were going to be. And so... Say that again. Yeah, the more specialized that we could, you know, even though we would lose business with some clients because they would say, oh, can you do this? And in the back of our mind, we're like, yeah, of course we can do this. But we would actually say, no, that's not what we do. And actually recommend one of our quote unquote competitors because we didn't want the jobs that were generic jobs. We wanted jobs that involved advertisers because one of the things I, one of the things that I really built at Logo was a new way to work with advertisers. And I, and I, I think I, kind of pioneered that for Viacom a little bit because quickly after we sort of pioneered some stuff, more stuff, I mean, RuPaul's Drag Race, for example, we had in the very first advertiser meeting for Logo and it was an original branded content concept that we were going to sell to Subaru and we were going to sell that there was going to be a drag race competition and you were going to run around with your Subaru to to do it. So I'm curious because I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just play super dumb for people that are listening and saying, wait, advertising, TV network, we're going to sell super, like how does all that work? What is it that actually happens when a, a brand says, wow, that network or that TV show is cool. We want to advertise and reach that audience. But just what's the simple mechanics of how that all comes together? Yeah, I mean, I'll back up even further. So there's two ways. I mean, there's other ways, including licensing in other ways. But 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 in the core, there are two ways that television networks make money. There are affiliate fees and there are advertiser fees. And the affiliate fees are what Comcast pays, and those amounts get go down every day, just you know, based on you know right. the subscriber rates and new models and all that kind of stuff. And all the competition. And all the competition. Yeah. Um, and then the other way is from advertisers. And so that is becoming, every day becomes more valuable to networks. Um, and advertisers have... With the, with the invention of DVRs and ways to sort of get around interruptive advertising, have tried to come up with, networks have tried to come up with ways to keep advertisers engaged and keep it cl as close to the content as possible. Meaning so we, were, we want the advertisement or advertiser to stay in front of the viewer's eyeballs. Yes. Even if they have a DVR and they can skip commercials, we're still going to do whatever. We're going to do product placements or we're going to do sponsorships or right. whatever. That Those kinds of things. Yeah. And we really started the business at the start of this journey. I mean, we really have 
Bark Bark has evolved with branded content. So originally what branded content was was sweepstakes. Like, you know, um, this advertiser is doing some sort of giveaway related to this show on this network, you know. So right. You're not going to skip that commercial because, hey, I might win a trip right. to Tahiti. It's the cow and chicken pepperidge farm, you know, fridge giveaway. I don't know. <laughs> and and that was, that was what branded content was. And we started out by doing those kind of things. And then it evolved into, you know, a lot of what you see now, which is sort of like sponsored promotions, you know, things. And, you know, Bark Bark is now, we're now doing fully funded advertiser series premiering on major networks that the network has only been peripherally involved in, you know, the production process and the creative process. I mean, they've been advising to make sure the content fits the air, but it's entirely driven by the advertiser. So we've really, and we've grown with this arc and we've sort of, I think, been really smart because we stayed specialized and said, we are only helping advertisers work with networks. That is entirely our business. And so we've been a part of all of those different iterations because we've been so specific. So let me get this straight because I think this is really interesting. So first of all, when I, when I want to talk to one of the pioneers in the branded content, do you remember when we used to call them integrations? Yeah. Because it yeah. would bring together advertiser brand, network brand, and create a promo or stunt or what have you. So I need to, I'll call you whenever I need the expert. Oh, absolutely. On that. And it's interesting to hear you talk about <clears throat> how this really is an, an innovation that didn't really exist as a format, I'm thinking, certainly around the 2000s it just wasn't no. it just wasn't happening no. because i guess back then the subscriber model uh, was was working people were making there wasn't like enough money and then as things started to get challenged i'm curious well, there's another pressure too i mean digital advertising really created a whole other level of you know and that went from you know 10 percent digital 90 percent broadcast to like quickly becoming and now i think it's probably 60 40 digital versus you know right. broadcast and so that was another thing that was putting pressure on networks to innovate so um yeah i mean it's been a little stressful because you always are you're kind of building a new business every day trying to keep up with the trends and what you're doing but because you're only focused on that part it's actually manageable to keep up with trends like if you were trying to keep up with trends in 50 different things you'll you couldn't do it well it's it's interesting you say that because again i think what you said earlier about specialization the reason i had you repeat it is you know i, I hear owners all the time express that fear of oh but if we if we're narrow you know the people that come to us for x and y and z won't send us work anymore and my argument is only is always in the short term yes but over the long term having deep being deep and having ex expertise that's narrow, you're going to be able to charge a whole lot more money, create a lot more value in the world. And I think in a way what I've, what I'm seeing, hearing from your, your journey with Bark Bark is that in a way has proven out that theory because you started there, but it's, I'm hearing almost this ongoing evolution where you started off working for the networks, yeah. right? Doing mm. uh, branded content in the forms of promos and stunts and sweeps and I don't know what have you, but it, Am I hearing you correctly that as time is going by, you're actually getting closer and closer to the brands? Yeah. In I a mean, way, the networks, I don't want to call them just a middleman because they're more than that. But in a way, conceptually, they're getting sort of squeezed out because the brands are where the money is. It's always where the money's been in, in terms of the advertising side. And they want to get to the audiences. And so the network is simply their means to an end. Yeah. I mean, the distributor has always been one of our closest allies, whether we were working directly for them. But now what's really cool is we are, because agencies and brands are coming to us because of our expertise, we are now bringing projects to networks, which is super. That's gotta be a, fun. It's fun. It's really fun. And, it, and, and I think the networks appreciate it because we know what we're doing and we've worked with them for so long. So it's, you know, these collaborations are really successful, you know, in so that sense. Can you give me an example? When you say we bring projects to a net, we bring a project to a network. Yeah. What would an example be? A very, very large advertiser came to us and said, you know, love what you're doing. We want to talk about, and it's a, it's a big, 
I can't say too much about it, but it, it's it's basically a big company that doesn't necessarily sell widgets. They sell kind of ideas, right? And so uh, they said, we want to do a really big brand, you know, series around this topic. And so we actually had, uh, about three years ago, formed partnerships with literally the world's leading content producers. So uh, Emmy award-winning companies from, you know, ITV to Pilgrim to Sean Hayes' production company to Jennifer Lopez's production company, just for this reason. So we could be like, okay, well, let's, let's bring you in partnership with this amazing content producer who really knows this space super well. And let's talk about what an idea for a show might be. And then let's talk about how much it costs. And then if that's all cool, let's go to a network and then let's, you know, talk about how much it would cost to put it on that network and have that network. And networks are, you know, looking at more innovative ways to produce content affordably. Um, yeah, how to fund how content, to fund it, yeah. if you will. Yeah, you know, except for Netflix who, you know, it, right. they're they're not in get I mean, they're a new category, so, you yeah, know, but the I'm, rules I'm, are I'm apply so differently. I'm so nervous about Netflix because, you know, they aren't engaging advertisers in a meaningful way. And, you know, they think, oh, well, I'm spending $5 billion, $6 billion, $7 billion on content. Advertisers represent $150 billion in advertising. And so if you're not engaging with them, they can out-compete you like uh, 75 times over. I mean, you know, they're like, you have to figure out a model in which you're engaging advertisers. So anyway, that aside. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's... Um, you know, networks are looking for ways to fund content. So it's kind of a win-win. So in other words, you're, you're in a way the, um, you're, you're almost positioned as the deal maker in the way that you, you actually understand, okay, this is a brand that we have a relationship with. They have a topic, an issue, a story, whatever that they want to tell. We obviously excel at telling it and we know how to bring together the other stakeholders. If it's, the Jennifer Lopez production company and this brand and oh by the way we know the people over at this network who would yeah. be a prime distributor for this content so you can sort of bring together those various pillars that form a foundation to this is a deal that makes sense this is going to work yeah I mean we're sort of we're deal makers in that sense but we're also creatives in the sense yeah, that we're yeah. trying to sort of anchor it all in the big idea and sort of align people around a big idea, which a lot of times is very hard. Well, what I love um, about that is, 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 is think about it as a creator, what could be more cool than you get to come up with really cool ideas, find the people that want to come alongside that or that want to also tell that same story and then go pitch it to somebody who says, yeah, and we'll pay for it. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good life. And we're also, you know, a lot of us are also translators, you know what I mean? Because, you know, you've got brands who are really speaking one language, you know, and then you've got content producers who are speaking like a whole other different language. Um, and then in some ways you have the network, which is speaking like another language. And we just like happen to speak all these different languages. So we really just a lot of times spend, you know, sort of being like, okay, when they say this, they mean this, you know, and you know, their goal, they say their goal is this, but what they mean for you is the goal is this. And so it's a lot of translating and because these, cause, and, and you see people try this stuff and it's not successful because they don't have a translator. And so I think we've also really carved a niche for ourselves by saying like, yeah, you could just call Ridley Scott and like go make your thing. But promise you, if you have us, we speak Ridley Scott's language and we speak your brand's language and we speak advertiser, you know. So if you have us there, it's going to be better and nothing's going to get lost in that translation gap. I love that because you know what I'm hearing is think about, um, I'm going to use the classic business speak of a value proposition. Okay, so hang with me. Don't, don't go to sleep. Any value proposition that you put to somebody is language. It's, it's words, it's images, it's sound, but it's some sort of a, hey, wouldn't this be amazing? But if they can't understand the language that you're speaking, right. it doesn't matter. And I love the way you describe yourself as translators because really what you're saying is we see something that not everyone else can quite see yet. 
So we're going to go out and connect these dots and help everyone see this thing. Right. Which means we have to translate it into, oh, you're, you're a Hollywood type. What we mean by that is this. Oh, you're a brand. What we mean by that is that. And once everybody realizes, no, we're all talking about the same thing. We're just using different words. We're okay. We, but we trust you and you've, you're in the middle of it. So we know you're going to deliver. That's, that's very cool. It's a neat solution. I can see a lot of value in doing that. Yeah. And I think, you know, and also your reel is a big component of this too. I mean, you know, we have been doing this for so long that, you know, we are sort of, you know, you see our work and it's like, it's that thing about being specialized. Like a lot of times what's amazing when you're as specialized as we are, like we go into meetings and people are like, Oh my God, you exist. And you're exactly what I've needed for so long because I need to do exactly that, you know? Um, but you also walk into people's, you know, and for a meeting and they're like, yeah, I have no idea what that means. And we know that's like not a person that, you know, is doing branded content. You know, they, they need somebody to do like an explainer video for, you know, their new product, or they need somebody to, you know, do marketing for their product. And, you know, we could do that, but we use entertainment to do what we do. And if you're not, if that's not what you're objective is then we're not the right person and branded content has become this very catch-all bucket and everybody says they do branded content and so um you know a lot of people make brand videos <laughs> but it's not brand co- branded content i mean branded content has to have an element of entertainment uh value so that it, the first goal is not to sell you something the first goal is to entertain you and then once you're entertaining somebody then you can do some marketing work within that context, but, um, you know, we definitely have that thing with clients where they're so happy when they find us. We also have those clients when they're like, yeah, but that's not what I need. And we're like, okay, well, that's not what we do. Right. Yeah. That's not our yeah. thing. Yeah. I'm curious when you to use the, fr- the phrase branded content, I've been exploring, I don't know, a theory, if you will, that branded content is slowly being replaced by something that I would call brand content. Are you yeah. seeing that shift? Meaning content isn't something that we just go create it and then we stick a brand on it. So that's right. brand dead. Right. But now there's this rise of brand content. Like, no, we're a brand and we need to view ourselves as a content network. Yeah. Or as, as an audience. Is that is that a rising trend as brands are just coming into the modern era of realizing we can't just, you know, put advertising out there and other messages and just expect it's all going to work out. We have to really view ourselves like a content creator on some level or another. Yeah. I mean, it's a very complicated uh, series of answers to that question because you have quote unquote brands like Amazon who are also studios now. And so is that branded content? But if you look back, I mean, we actually did a, a fun video, you know, looking back and, if you look at what G&E and P&G were doing in the 50s and 60s, you know, there was GE was making brand content. Yes. And, you know, P&G created soap operas basically to sell more soap. And so, um, you know, it, it's not new what we're talking about. I think there is content that has a marketing objective to it. And I think that's where we do our best work at Bark Bark because uh, it's very different than content unrelated to what you're doing. You right. know, Amazon is sort of probably more operating in the PNG, G&E model in the 50s and 60s in the sense that they are creating content that attracts their customers and then their customers are engaging in other ways and vice versa. And their customers are becoming audience members. And so, you know, it's sort of that big, big business kind of brand content well there's all this also this nuance that there's content that amazon creates that you actually buy it you pay for right. it's a like a product right like i want to buy this movie right again it comes in the form of a subscription what have you but for the sake of discussion they're creating a piece of content that you're going to buy right which is different than all this other type of content that is marketing content because i'm not going to buy your commercial or your brand film or what have you most likely but I'm going to watch it. Right. Why? Because it entertains me and I'm into your product, your brand, your right. mission, your whatever. 
maybe that's a delineation that. Yeah, I mean, as opposed to Netflix, who I'm confused about. I think what Netflix is doing, I mean, what um, Amazon is doing is so smart. I mean, it really, I mean, they are truly making entertainment part of their brand experience and they are the world's largest retailer. And, you know, I think, I think they've, they've got a map for success built into what they're doing. Um, I don't see that so much for Netflix when it comes to advertising. And at some point, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I don't understand it. And I'm not saying that I'm the smartest, you know, media person there is. I definitely understand what Amazon is doing to some extent. And I really think it's really smart. Um, and then you have brands like what has failed is brands that try to start networks. You know, for example, like Red Bull started, you know, like Red Bull TV. Um, I can probably think of like three or four others if I could think of them. But like. But they're the poster child. Yeah. I mean, it's just like that don't try that like yeah. it doesn't work because it's not i don't know it, it you can spend a lot of money very quickly and try to think you're building an audience but at the end of the day you're just making noise to the side and you're not really connecting with people and so did red bull ever achieve that i'll call it a holy grail of we just created a show and people are going to pay they're going to buy this content. I don't know that they ever got they there. Did. Because I mean, they had a big win with the space jump. I mean, I think yeah. that was, and I don't know that that would have happened if there wasn't the Red Bull TV resource and team. And or, I, I don't know the inside story of it, but mm -hmm. just looking from the outside, mm -hmm. you know, and that was a huge brand win, probably one of the biggest ever from a piece of video content standpoint. So they did do that. And so they get credit for that, but that didn't, I don't know that that built an audience and I don't know that that has long-term sustainability or I don't, you know. Right. Right. Cause that momentary zillions of eyeballs, um, and engagement, but did we tune in next week and right. the week after and the week after? Right. Not so much. And I'm excited to see what Apple's going to do. Cause I think everybody's been wondering what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, at the end of the day, they are a lot more like Amazon than they are like Netflix in the sense that they have products to advertise. Yeah. And so they are sort of the P&G and G&E of things, right? And so I think, I think if Apple stays close to its businesses and its products and- It's, it's soul, and if it's you will. soul, yeah. And doesn't try to do what like Red Bull did and try to just- I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, there seems to be a distinction there. I'm excited to see what they're going to do. And I'm ex excited that they're, you know, I don't think we've seen Apple do too much terribly wrong. So I think they'll figure it out. But, I, you know, I hope they look at Amazon much more closely than they look at Netflix. Right. Give me a little inside peek at um, at the team at Bark Bark, And then I want to hear a little bit more about how your role has been evolving and shifting even away from Bark Bark. But what, what's, um, what's the team size now? And, and offices are where? Atlanta and New York? Um, we have three offices. We have Atlanta, New York, and Los Angeles. Okay. Um, we have about 30 people okay. on the team. And is, the, is that, is that model, is, as your model is evolving, are, is most all of your business still from TV networks? Or is it all, a big chunk brand direct? Do you ever work for ad agencies? I would say the smallest part of our business would be Brand Direct. We actually do most of our work with advertising agencies and um, television networks and media companies. Okay. So I would say it's probably, yeah. So Not, when, when an ad agency comes to you, do they come to you ever for a traditional spot or is it always some sort of branded content bringing together this brand, this brand, or this entertainment property, what have you? What's a typical? What B. A, yeah. B? I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, I mean, that's the thing is we've really become platform agnostic. Um, it's all about entertaining people. So we do tons of Snapchat content. We do tons of um, digital content, you know, almost, I'd say very little of our stuff airs on television. I mean, not very little of our stuff. I'd say about half our stuff airs on television, but you know, most of it is, um, on interesting digital platforms or airs on TV a little bit and airs digitally a lot. Yeah. Well, that is a big shift when I think of the days that you and I come from where everything we did ended up on right. TV, like no exception ever. 
Um, okay, so as BarkBark Bark has been evolving over the past few years, how has your role shifted? Um, obviously, being the owner, the founder, and I think you were essentially the chief creative yeah. for many, many years. But then a few years ago, I know you started to talk about, I'm getting into some other things. Yeah. How's your journey just evolved and shifted? Um, I got to a point where I was getting really bitter with clients and, you know, um, I mean, the challenge is always when you're working on the outside is that, uh, and I'm sorry that clients would disagree with me. We are smarter than you are because we work across a whole bunch of different businesses. And with us, we work across advertising agencies, brands, and media companies. So we should be smarter than you in your limited role at your limited company on your one particular thing. And so I would get so frustrated when our clients would treat us like they knew everything way better than we did. And I was like, hold on a second, you don't. And if you listen to what I'm saying, but then we would also have clients that were amazing and would lean on us for our expertise and let us make them the hero of whatever we were working on and let them be the smartest person in the room. But unfortunately, those just became rarer and rarer. And it was just, you know, it was really getting frustrating for me. So I realized I needed to step off of the front lines of the business and really focus on what I wanted to do next and sort of what the next generation. And we also had an incredible team with Daniel and Tabitha and Anne and Karen who were pretty much running the business and I was just getting in the way <laughs> and creating problems. And were like, you rabble rousing? I was. And I was like, yeah, totally. And I, you know, I was like firing clients and, you know, I was like, they're, you know, they're not smart enough to work with us, you know? So, and I realized that it was just me like getting sort of past like a peak where I was like, you know what? I, I need to sort of step back and let other people, you know, because the business was doing great things and the company was doing great things and we had great employees and, you know, create creatively we were doing phenomenal work. So I, I decided to sell the business. So I sold the business to them and said, you know, we're going to create a way for that to happen and work with some investors to make that happen. And so we did. And, um, it was the best thing I ever did because, uh, we, the, quarter after we signed the deal was the best quarter the company ever had we've had record-breaking quarters every quarter since it's just been phenomenal for everybody for me for them and also like where was i going to promote these people to you know like you know i could get to a place where like what motivation is salary for you when you see this huge deal closing and you're not getting like anything yeah and you have all that responsibility yeah. But only some of the authority. Right. Right. And yeah, at some point I would think as a, as a leader who's been working for an agency production company that you start wondering, well, I have more of a voice. I should have more of a voice and more of a decision in where this company's going, but I'm limited. So I either just suck it up or I start looking where else to go. And of course, as you know, all the value in your company is in those people right. and retaining them. And I mean, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like it was a very shrewd move. And I would say I've seen that pattern a few times play over of a wise owner who says, I'm going to create a transition. I'm going to pass the baton. And you do it in a very you know careful and measured way with good input and advice. And... I know some owners that have gone on and they say, well, I only own 20% now or some minority or something, but for the next 10, 20, 30 years of their life, they still, they're still involved. They're still yeah. an advisor. They still every now and then get to dabble in the creative, right. but they also benefit from the proceeds as the company continues to grow and evolve. Yeah. Is this is somewhat similar to your story? A hundred percent. I mean, I really firmly believe that if you love something, you have to give it away. I mean, you just, you, if you, when you hold things too tightly, they die. And that was really happening at Bark Bark. I mean, I, I, I mean, the chart, you know, now is sort of the straight uphill line, but it definitely would have been like the slow, gradual decline of a grumpy, you know, cantankerous person. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that was a good move for sure. And, and it's been rewarding for them. It's been rewarding for me. I think it's been rewarding for the clients because they feel the new energy and um, it's, I, I, it's like the best life decision I've made so far. 
I was, made many mistakes, but this is like a this is, goes in the success category. Right, you put this on the yeah the short list of big wins yeah. um, column. Was there a moment that you like when you look back on the, that decision? Was there an inciting incident when you said, "I can't do this anymore"? Like um, my yes. team is right. I can't fire another client. I can't just be grumpy all the yeah. time. I'm. I'm or your doctor says you're. You're stressed out. You're going to have a heart attack. What was, um, what was that moment? Well, I also was having sort of within myself sort of this desire to be more mission driven and to be more in sort of a give back phase. And so I, I recognized that I needed to do this a hundred percent when I was fighting with a diversity and inclusion person at a network and it, trying to explain to them why they needed women and people of color to direct projects for them and why they shouldn't create a vendor list that excluded all people of color and all females in the creatives and they only hired straight white people's companies to do stuff and i literally looked the woman's name up and i googled her home address and i was like i could find her and i was like wow wait i was like i've definitely <laughs> crossed a line when, when as soon as you google their home address you you know that you need to put down the torch and yes. say, you know what? I got to step away before I hurt someone. Yeah, I was like that. And I was like, because I was so passionate about, you know, sort of justice in the world. And I wasn't in a position where I could actually deliver that. And, uh, you know, other than, you know, exacting justice, you know, at somebody's house. <laughs> right. Or go make a lot of money and donate it to your cause. Right. But yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't right. satisfy. It, it didn't. So, um, you know, that's when I was like, I got to do this. And, you know, one of the great things is, is after doing this at Bark, Bark, you know, I worked with the team and said, listen, I'm going to start a new thing right away. Like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to still help you guys at Bark, Bark but I'm going to still do something else. And so that's when I started Lexicon Strategies, which is my, the new business, the company I started. And we're entirely mission driven. We help corporations who have a civic agenda, a positive civic agenda, really achieve their goals. So, and we've, I mean... I started that immediately after selling Bark Bark two and a half years ago. And we now have Delta Airlines as our client, American Cancer Society as our client, the National Center for Civil Human Rights as our client. So we, we're really like, and I love it. And I'm, and I don't think about, you know, hurting anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't Googled anybody lately. I haven't Googled anybody's self address lately. And it's Lexicon Strategies? Lexicon Strategies, yeah. And that's how old now? Two uh, years? It's now two and a half years old, yeah. Man. What's interesting is I, I'm just thinking about the alternate story that could have played out, because the play. We actually go to her house. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and I'm in prison. You're now. in prison, right? We're watching yeah. you on uh, yeah, yeah on the evening news. But I mean, in all in all honesty, I think the other story is the one that more often plays out. That the owner, it's almost like the, your success becomes your worst enemy. It does because you get trapped in this sort of prison cell called, well, this is what made me successful. I have to keep doing this. And I have to keep servicing these clients and I have to kind of this. And of course, the door to that prison was always open. You could have walked out at any time. Right. But but we don't because we're just convinced that, well, I'm addicted to cash and I have, I have to make these clients happy. And you end up, I don't know, it's like this, you you you, you have this death grip on the thing that made you successful. And this is where people refuse to go out on top. They instead cling and hang on and the thing sort of slowly withers and dies. Yeah. And what I find to be the real tragedy is when someone's in that mode for five or 10 years, the bitterness and the resentment and frustration gets the better of them to where they, they, they just lose their, their desire, their passion, their real value in the world sort of ebbs away. And then one day, they have no options because right. they have to shut the business down right? and there's nothing left. And then they have to go get a job. Right. And it's not a executive job. It's, you know, going to work for minimum wage or something. And it's really sad. And it sounds like what I love about your story is you, you, you obviously recognize that moment and it sounds like you had a good team around you and they also saw it and they said, Hey, this isn't, this isn't good. You need to make a change, but you somehow recognize an opportunity of how can I take all these good things that I have built and convert them. Right. Not hang on to them, but convert it into something else. 
So what, what so what, what's your day look like now? I mean, do you spend most of your time well, I in lexicon to, mode? I want to speak to that, that you just said because yeah, I think on, you know, a lot of I think a lot of people think that giving part of the business away is really expensive, but what's really expensive is trying to hold it together when it's falling apart. And if you just give away pieces of it or the whole thing, you won't encounter that. And financially for me, that would have been painful. But I, you know, and I'm not, you know, retiring a wealthy, wealthy person, but like, I think financially I'm more stable because I gave it away. And if I had ridden the downslope, that's very expensive. The downslope is very expensive. I know this because what I didn't mention before was when I started that freelance business working with Turner, um, the AOL Time Warner merger came along and I only had Turner clients and my business withered and died. And so I had to take that just above minimum wage job at Viacom to kind of recover from losing my business. So I can tell you that like this time around, I knew not to do that because like riding the down wave is just very expensive. And you do sort of get to a really financially difficult position when you are at the bottom of that slope. And this one, it's sort of like, I saw like going over the hill and into the down slope and I was like, nope, not going that way, (laughs) you know? And that meant having to, you know, give, things away and, yeah. and and bring other people in. But what I'm most proud about in that whole thing is that my legacy is not just building success for myself. I now, ha- I mean, there are four families that are going to have success for the rest of their lives because of this too. Yeah, and so there's now, this business has now made five people a success in life. And, and even, I mean, and the employees too, I mean, you know, beyond just the partners, I mean, keeping these employees employed, I mean, put that out to 30 people, you know, now there's 30 people who are living on their lives and pay and feeding their families and paying their mortgage and all that stuff because I wasn't selfish and right. I didn't make this about me. I made it about us. And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm pretty proud of. Well, what I'm hearing there is there that you, you decided to tell a story that other people wanted to be a part of and that telling that story is a much better story than well I held on to it and I fought and clawed my way to the bitter end because that's really a story that let's be honest not only your team doesn't want to be a part of but clients don't want to be a part of that story either right and the fun part now is like that's not even my story. It's now like our story. And like, I go to meetings now and I'll like sit in the back and like they do, you know, they tell the story and they do their thing and it's changed. And it's like, you know, and sometimes I'm like, "Mm, maybe don't say that part, (laughs) but like (laughs) it's evolved. And it's like a thing that's like, you know, it's like living beyond all of us. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. In a a way I'm just sitting here wondering um, if, if it's almost that dynamic of if you're, if you're a parent, you have a child and there's this season where, you're passing the torch and it's like, well, I have to sort of let go, but the, I may have to diminish in some ways, but it's going to allow you to shine. But the greater story is actually a more beautiful thing. Yeah, no, it, it is. It's been, I've been so happy with this, but to your next question about like, what do I do all day? Yeah. Um, so for the past year I've been running the national center for civil and human rights, um, sort of, um, as a board member who sort of stepped in when the CEO stepped down. Um, and say that again, because that whizzed by really fast. The, oh, National, the National Center. Center for Civil and Human Rights. Okay. And what is that? So we curate um, the personal papers of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We have that collection in partnership with Morehouse College. They have the sort of academic and archival responsibilities, and we have the curation and exhibition responsibilities. Um, and we use that to talk about civil and human rights movements around the world. Um, and you know, getting into this mission-driven place has been amazing. Um, it also, you know, the the organization sort of needed me as much as I kind of needed this. You know, the 2016 election happened and I had a little bit of a meltdown. Um, and so I was like, I got to do something, you know, to advance civil and human rights because, you know, America used to stand for that. And, um, you know, what am I going to do? And so this opportunity came up. It's been amazing. It's been so rewarding. And also it's like the skills... What's very cool is that I thought I was going to know kind of nothing about how to run a business like this, but our business translates so flawlessly into like every other business. And I can tell you, like, I mean, granted, I've been doing a lot of translation. I'm like, oh, 
you mean that it's like this, you know, right. but it, instead of clients, you have donors exactly. instead of, right. But it's all the same. Exactly. Conceptually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's more like instead of advertisers, we have donors, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, what are the objectives for this, you know, branded sure. content campaign, AKA, you know, uh, civil rights, you know, program on Rwanda, you know, it's really cool in that sense. And that, you know, you think you don't know very much and you only know this one thing and then you realize, Oh wait, I, I kind of know a lot because you know, I've been down this road many times and I've sort of rebuilt the business too. So that's been fun too. You know, we, um, it was kind of a startup here. We'd start it. We opened in, uh, 2014 and it's now become kind of a late stage startup. And so I kind of took us over the hump into like real business and, mm. you know, we're really financially incredibly strong right now. And did, so did the center start off as a client and um, then, and then you recognize this need and said, you know what, I'll step in when the CEO stepped down. Was it that sort of a, and that was a board member. So I had been okay. involved sort of like conceptually, um, with the center. Hold on. Sorry. Up. Major donor calling. Yeah. Oh, is that what your wrist is lighting yeah, up with yeah, major yeah, donor yeah, calling? Yeah, it really was. Um, <laughs> we better cut it short. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, got to get back to that, to that client. But, uh, yeah, I was on the board, so I had been involved and we had donated a lot of services and a lot of things. Um, you know, Bark Park's name is on the wall of the building because we really supported them in the early days. Very cool. And so when your tenure here is done, which it sounds like it's in yeah, the next sort month. of a winding yeah. down phase, you're going to put your focus back on Lexicon? Yeah. Back at Lexicon Strategies. I mean, that... Um, and taking care of those clients. And that will that take up 60, 70, 80, 90% of your time compared to your Bark Bark... Uh, yeah. Uh, honorary role or whatever, yeah. whatever it is. Um, I will go back to waking up at like, you know, six instead of four, um, which will be really nice. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. I've been killing myself lately, but it's been amazing. I mean, like I could, I could do this forever, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's also probably not healthy. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'll go back to Lexicon, probably spend about 60% of my time there and probably 40% at Bark Bark. I still, I still have some things at Bark Bark that I want to help them do to, to really cement the long range viability of the whole mm. thing just to, you know, like I said, with, with advertiser, um, content needs, you always have to be evolving and, you know, like I, I want Netflix to, you know, I want to go back and make Netflix do better with right. advertisers. You know, like <laughs> I know they don't, so they don't think they Netflix, need them, but you, yeah. Anyone at Netflix that's listening, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll give you Brian's number. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got your home address. Don't worry. <laughs> Well, just briefly to, to kind of touch on something you said a second ago as we as we wrap up. It is very cool to think that you, all this knowledge and everything that, that you you thought all you knew was how to run a production company. And then you started Lexicon, but then had this opportunity here with the center and to step in as the CEO was, was exiting. It's interesting to realize when you have that moment, you realize actually you know, 80% of running any business is the same, whether it's that business, this business, this other thing. Sure, what we produce, our product or our service, is that unique thing, and that's obviously a big, big deal. But a lot of owners don't recognize everything that they know and that they yeah. can step into other opportunities, other businesses, and be incredibly valuable and relevant, even though they think, oh, well, you know, if it's not a production company, what the hell would I know about running a nonprofit? I think some owners would find that. And I and and not that I'm special because I think there's a lot of people like me, but I know of some owners that I don't think could make that translation because they've run their business that it's about themselves. And it's just to the earlier point. But if you've run a business and you've always made it about other people, every business is built with other people. So if it's just about you and it's the you show, I don't think those people could do that as well. And I know some owners that are like that and they've been very successful doing that and, you know, more successful than me doing that. So, but if I don't think that translates as well, but right. if you've run, if you've been a great manager and you have always made it about other people and always made it about the work and, you know, the translation is kind of insane about how many different businesses like, cause that's every business runs that way, you know? Well, there is definitely a tendency in our industry, especially where creatives start a business and their real motivating factor is I want to be famous. Like I want to make the most amazing work ever and be 
that guy. And they think the end of the game is to become the auteur. Right. I'm going to make the move from artist to auteur. And everyone else will do the work, but my name's on it. I get all the credit. And they think that's the end of right. the journey. But I think as you've demonstrated, there's more beyond that. Yeah. Because you come to a stage where you are curating. But now you're entering the next stage, which is cool, that we call the collector stage. Where you're, you're, you're actually giving more away than you're trying to take and... It's not about the next client and the next check. It's more like, how can I give away? And the more I give away, the more value I create in the world. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just very excited that you're managing this transition and I think an inspiration to a lot of people who might approach this season that you've been through and, and, and not know, well, what are my options? How would this work? And so I think your story is a big encouragement. Yeah. Thanks. And, and, and when we're talking about selling Bark Park, I, I looked at a lot of different options. I mean, there were, you know, acquisitions, there were, you know, agencies that wanted to, you know, to acquire us, but those just didn't make sense for, for what my goal was. And I know people who've done it and been very unhappy with the, you know, the sort of pressure to deliver. And yeah. like, I was done with the pressure to deliver. Like that's what I was escaping. So I had to avoid scenarios that were like that because I knew that would be a disaster. Well, I hope people are listening carefully to the nuances of what you just said because as an owner, you do have options. And the the classic, I don't know, the cliche of, oh, I'm going to sell my business someday is a very one-dimensional way to approach where your business goes in the future. Right. So kudos to you for managing that transition and telling a better story. Well, thank you. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more information on upcoming accelerators, events, or to learn how RevThink advises creative entrepreneurs like you, connect with us at RevThink.com. 